From the Medical Republic, I'm Francine Crimmins. This is The Tea Room. Working as a GP is anything but ordinary. Every day these specialists are faced with new and challenging tasks which they complete under extraordinary pressures and with little thanks from the public. And even beyond the clinic, GPs are very human people, ones with talents and other interests such as art, music, cooking and sport, just to name a few. But in the COVID pandemic, many are feeling burnt out and may have even lost some of the joy they used to find in medicine. This episode, we look at finding that spark again and standing up for the profession. This episode, we're joined by Dr. Wendy Burton, a Queensland GP and a strong advocate for the profession with her online blog, GPs Can. Wendy, welcome to the show. Thanks, Francine. So could we maybe start by you telling us a little bit about yourself for those who don't know you and how you got so involved in being an advocate online for GPs? Uh, So I'm a second generation GP. My parents were both uh, country GPs. Uh, I was born and raised in a house with a surgery attached to it across the road from a small private hospital. My mum gave the anaesthetics, dad did the operations and between them they delivered most of my friends. So I grew up in a town on the Sunshine Coast um, in Queensland uh, during the 1960s and 70s and I've been in general practice therefore really my whole life. Uh, I never planned to become a GP and mum and dad threatened to slit the throat of the first one of us who did. Uh, But when I realised in year 12 that I had the grades, um, I thought I could give it a go and if I didn't like, well, I'd give medicine a go and if I didn't like it, well, I could always pivot and do something else. But when I got out there and I enjoyed it and I really liked people, so I ended up in general practice but in a city practice because I married an engineer who was work kept him city-based. In terms then of how I got involved in advocacy and online presence, well, I guess I always felt that there was a story to be told about general practice that I just didn't see anybody else telling. And I know that the colleges have tried, um, but it was probably going down the rabbit hole of GPs down under on Facebook and and really speaking to a broader audience and hearing back and getting that the real-time feedback that you can in an online community and just realizing that some of the younger members of the profession who didn't have the kind of history and background that I did weren't seeing the vision, weren't seeing the opportunities, weren't seeing the richness that I firmly believe is is general practice and I just there was a story to be told and I'm kind of one of those people if someone else is doing it doing it well step away and let them get on with it but if I think I can do a better job well I'll just give it a give it a go and so I did and GP's can was born Hmm. so your backstory of you know growing up so closely um, in the heart of general practice and then Mm -hmm. it's a spirit that you've really carried with you into your career and I guess that is something really special that you can pass that love and joy on to the next generation of GPs, um, as you were saying. And that's something that a lot of people comment on in general practice is, you know, have we lost that um, the feeling of family medicine uh, for what it used to be? In In your experience, do you think that it's still alive and well or what do you think needs to change to, to bring it back to uh, that true... Uh, community-bound medicine that it's always been? 
Oh, that's a really great question. Um, I think that it always has existed. I think it exists, but I think it's in pockets. Um, people were incredulous at my suggestion that you could create the feel of a country general practice in the city, but it really comes down to the personalities of the team. So everything from the receptionists through to the nursing staff, through to the GPs themselves, but there are definitely distortions that occurred in the profession uh, with the advent of the big um, bulk billing clinics. So I was working in Sydney in the 1990s when Edelston uh, did his first of his, you know, big clinics and worked in a practice where one of the big clinics was established. And it was quite a, a, a threat uh, and a potential game changer. So my uh, boss at the time, I was an employee uh, as a GP back then, uh, actually approached me and said, look, I think we need to you know, convert to a, a bulk billing practice. And I simply said to him, I said, listen, I, you know, you do what you, you need to to maintain the viability of the practice. But if you make us universal bulk billing, then I will leave and seek a position somewhere else. Because I knew the kind of medicine that I wanted to provide, it's relationship-based. And the Medicare rebate just doesn't do justice to that type of, of medicine. So I was never going to be a six-minute girl or even a 10-minute girl. Uh, and Medicare is the purchase, the Medicare rebate is the purchasing power for the consumer. And it just doesn't buy the kind of care that I wanted to provide. So I think that the finances and the the repeated failure of successive governments of both persuasions to index the Medicare rebate in line with average weekly earnings and CPI has meant that what a consumer can now purchase in terms of their medical care has become shorter and shorter. And it's led to dissatisfaction both from consumers, but also from providers. And then, of course, there was the great workforce shortage. I lived through that as well. Uh, and that impacted the care because there just weren't enough GPs. So this is multifactorial. How did we get here? Oh, gosh, you don't have time in this podcast. But it's multifactorial. And as a postgraduate year 34 um, GP who has lived this journey for every one of her 58 years on the planet, there are things that I know about the history and there are others who know far more uh, than I do. But these are the stories we need to tell and what we need to understand about how did we get here? And then there's, then there's the, the, the um, university fees. So my generation was fortunate enough to benefit from free university education. So I, I came into medicine with a sense that I, I owed something back to my community. But the younger GPs are, are graduating with, or the younger medicos are graduating with huge uh, debts that they need to repay. And, and I don't think they have that same, same sense of, of owing a debt to community. And also, I imagine that with those big debts, it probably is also what makes them think about what specialty they might go into and also whether that will be metropolitan-based or rural-based and they're probably calculating the hours and how much they'll get paid and how quickly they can pay off that debt as well. Absolutely. Look, look hopefully... Income is not the sole or the primary motivator for anybody, but let's be realistic. You know, you, you look at 
uh, how long will it take take me to to qualify? Um, how much will I earn? How long will it take me to repay the debt? You know, we we have sacrificed our youth. Uh, typically, uh, it takes at least eleven odd years to train as a GP, um, and no guarantee that you'll pass the exams first time. Um, so for that eleven plus years and the costs that have been involved for the drop in income that comes when I leave the hospital system, what is my return? And the return is measured both in terms of flexibility of the workplace, uh, satisfaction of the work that we're doing, but of course includes remuneration. And unfortunately, that has been eroded significantly, as has the respect within the community for the profession that we have. Hmm. So. I noticed that recently you tweeted a poster which was explaining to patients what gaps, what gap fees pay for. Mm-hmm. In your experience, do you think that most patients actually know much about how GPs are paid? Oh, or not a clue. Not a clue. And, and not just not just patients. Uh, our hospital colleagues have no idea because they haven't lived and worked outside. Everyone, everyone should have to work as a, as a GP receptionist. Oh, my gosh. And because and, I did that as a teenager. Uh, that would open their eyes to to what it is. But even today, um, uh, the Queensland, I'm not sure whether it was um, the health minister or the chief health officer, was talking about uh, second astrodoses being done at the pharmacies. And they don't understand that if they do that, that will um, remove from the general practice owners the $10 PIP payment, which is helping to underwrite because there's significant costs uh, up front for admin, for for everything from stickers to appointment systems, just to get the first doses of the vaccine done. They don't recoup some of that until they do the second. But if that then goes to the pharmacist, understanding that the second dose is the easier dose because you've already consented first time, um, they have no idea how we're funded. No idea at all. And do you think that patients often assume that GPs are getting paid, you know, a salary from the federal government and that the Medicare rebate or gap fee is some kind of extra payment? Oh, absolutely. And they have no idea that most of us are contractors, that we get no sick pay, no long service leave, no holiday pay, no um, protected leave for um, upskilling and education, personal development. Uh, If we get sick um, because they coughed in our face or their child coughed in our face, the time we take off work, we're not paid for. Uh, And if we, of course, get COVID, the time we take off work isn't paid for. No idea. And and to be honest, most of them don't really care. Um, they're dealing with their own lives, their own situation. But I think they somehow assume that the government is paying our rent, paying for the nurses, paying for the front desk. And while I can't engage them in concerns about my own income, when I talk directly to my patients and I say, I want to be able to give my front desk a, a raise, I want to be able to pay the nurses more, that they care about. They consider we're too well paid to even think about it, but they do care about how we're paying for our other staff. Um, but they're, they're surprised that that's not something the government is doing. We're not considered part of small business, but we're very much, for the majority of practice, small businesses. And when you look at the vaccine rollout, it's essentially the government engaging thousands of small businesses across the country to get the job done. In your experience, do you think that there's going to be a positive outcome from this where the government will maybe start to value GPs a little bit more? I mean, they're they're talking the talk at the moment, telling GPs how important they are to the system. But do you think that 
that will actually incite a culture change where they start to value them more when the budget rocks around? Nope. Nope. Greg Hunt did a video in which he extolled the virtues of general practice and general practitioners and how amazing we were and how much we were valued and within the week he had tweeted a thing about how bulk billing rates were the best they'd ever been and this was a mark of success of the government. It was a, such a slap in the face when you consider that we have been mandated to bulk bill all the COVID item numbers, that when telehealth went, uh, you know, when they made that available under Medicare, everybody, uh, all care providers were required to bulk bill. And then after a short time, only GPs were required to continue bulk billing. If you were a, a nurse practitioner, if you were a psychologist, allied health provider, uh, another specialist you could then charge a gap but GPs had to keep going I think for another couple of months it was just outrageous and and so for a practice like ours which is geared to be mixed billing so we do bulk bill some but we the majority of practice of our practice patients um, pay a gap we're not we're not staffed we're not resourced we're not we're not set up for the kind of of uh, income stream that comes from bulk billing um, and we're not used to the kind of throughput that you would require to make that work financially. We, we my practice owners, um, now a contractor, my practice owners seriously considered whether they were going to have to, have to stand staff down and perhaps even close the practice. That's how close we came as a small business uh, with the changes that were required, mandated, legislated of us. It was just outrageous. And all at the same time, while we were in fear of our very lives, and and I always I always knew when I was training, I always knew that that was the deal. That one day there might come uh, along an infection that would claim my life. I knew that. Uh, when swine flu hit, I thought, oh my gosh, maybe this is it. Uh, and my husband was between jobs at the time. We had three young sons. I had a plan. He was going to take them to a to a remote area where they could have chickens and rainwater, and <laughs> they would just live there. And I would stay and work on. And if I died, I died. But they would be safe, you know. And of course, swine flu turned out fortunately not to be particularly deadly. Um, but it was our dress rehearsal and. And can I say we failed um, the vaccination program there? But that's another story. Um, but then when this one came, oh my gosh! It, because it wasn't just because flu. I don't know. Didn't seem as scary. But now this one was very, very scary. And I had to consider not just that I might die in the line of my work, but I could bring this home and I could give it to vulnerable members of my household and. They could die. So the first two months, I, you know, I lived in the front of the house. I, I came home, put the washing on, had a shower, um, set a social distance from my family while we ate dinner, retreated into my bedroom, which fortunately had a bathroom nearby, and my husband slept downstairs for two months. You know, I just, it was just incredible um, to think. And so it's it's been, gosh, what a journey it's been. Um, so that was... Yeah, even for this GP who's been a GP her whole life <laughs> or a meshed in general practice her whole life, I, I kind of, I don't think I was really ready for this. And, and, and as you said in your introduction, we're human. If you cut us, we bleed. Um, we may be clever, we may be privileged, but um, we care about our families and we don't want to harm them and we care about our communities and our patients. When we ask people not to bring their sick children into the practice, it's not just that we're worried about ourselves and the fact we don't have sick leave. 
what about the other people in the waiting room? What about our front desk staff? What about our nursing staff? You place everybody at risk. We need to do this different and we need to work smarter. So you've just described what I think a lot of people that listen to the podcast would be feeling and that's I think the public is often quite complacent when they talk about healthcare workers dealing with this pandemic because the excuse is often oh well you know they know what it's all about and they kind of signed up for this in their line of duty but the sustained stress of dealing with that day in day out of going at the moment you're in Queensland your um, state is in a partial lockdown and the fact that you're still going out and vaccinating and you don't know who's going to come through the door, that that is a stressful experience. And staying in the front of your house, you don't know whether you could be bringing this virus home. What do you see as, as some of the challenges to the profession? Do you think that this will be another disincentive for people uh, wanting to become frontline healthcare workers? And what do you think needs to happen to make this value proposition good for the next generation who will have to do the job that you've been doing for the last few decades? Francine, I fear for the next generation, but my parents feared for the next generation. You know, my parents thought that they'd seen the best of the profession uh, and that the best years were behind them and that the government interference was creating barriers to the quality of care that they could provide and and they just didn't see how it was going to work. And on my bad days, I feel their pain and I fear the same. But then I look around and I see some of my colleagues doing epic and amazing things. And although I repurposed GP's can for COVID information in March last year, uh, working with some amazing colleagues and doing work at an unsustainable pace, um, The reason I built it in the first place was I wanted bragging rights. I wanted to show and I wanted wanted the next generation to see you can, and and not even the next generation, current GPs, you can choose your own adventure. I mean, just have a look at the This This GP Can wall. There's GPs there who do everything from photography to... um, to uh, archaeology, to um, mental health work, to maternity work, to cutting edge research. It's just amazing. There's broadcasters. Uh, I am just so proud. People who have changed the world, tenacious people who held on for decades and fought with their communities against public health policy that they believed was wrong. So Dr. Michael Rice, who was able to get a birthing service returned to his rural community. Now, by the time it did, he was no longer able to practice as a GP obstetrician, but there is now a roaringly successful birthing unit in his town. Why? Because he refused to accept um, the policy and he worked with his consumers and with his community, with his local government, and he turned that around. I am so proud of my colleagues and the amazing work they do. So so on my bad days, I despair. The funding matters. The public perception matters. The abuse, the, uh, it, it, you know, but 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 I don't look to the opinions of others for my self-worth. Am I true to myself? Am I providing a good service? Do I sleep well at night knowing I took care of the individual in front of me? And if the answer is yes, if I've done my best job I can, well, there's nothing more that I can do. 
I think to sustain uh, work as a, a GP in the long term, it, it helps to cultivate a side issue, uh, side interest, which I have, um, because the work itself is very demanding and and such. But I don't know. I, I, there's just so much that's wonderful. I love the breadth. I love the depth. I love that I never know what's coming my way, even when I look at the list and I know my patients because I've been working in the area for 20 odd years. Um, and I think, oh, yeah, that'll be about X, Y, Z. No, no, no. They throw me curveballs all the time. I love it. I'm insatiably curious and it's the best job in the world. Frustrating and difficult and sometimes brings me to tears and I'm shouting too much at my family at the moment with the stress, but best job <laughs> in the world. Best job in the world. Dr. Wendy Burton, thank you. Francine, you're welcome. Take care. Before we go, don't forget that you can follow or subscribe to The Tea Room right now by searching for the show on the podcast player of your choice. You'll then be notified when a new episode becomes available. Catch you next time.